Good morning. I'm really grateful to be here with you all today. And um, I was listening to All Things Considered on NPR. Is that right? No, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And I noticed, because I was able to listen for more than two minutes, that she, every two two to five minutes, says, if you're just tuning in with us today, my guest is... And she like repeats it over and over again. Because I'm never in the car by myself, and I was actually like driving by myself and could listen to it. And I feel like summer's a little bit like that. Like many of us are in and out, and so we kind of have to start each sermon by saying, if you're just tuning in with us today, and those of you who've faithfully been here every Sunday are like, I know, it's Galatians. But some of you have been on trips for a while. So just to recap, we are spending our summer in the book of Galatians. It is not the beach reading you want to be doing. It's kind of dense stuff. And um, some of the main themes are about faith and the law, because Paul had shared the gospel with the Galatians. Both Gentiles and Jews became believers. And then after he left, this group came in and said, oh, no, 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 no. It's Jesus plus the law. You've got to do step one before you do step two. And was trying to convince these Gentile believers that they had to become like Jews, they had become circumcised and come under the authority of the law in order to be fully in Christ and be perfected in Christ. And Paul is refuting them in a number of different ways. And last week, as Mark shared, um, he was talking about identity and these things that we put up as boundary markers to say who we are. And Paul, at the beginning of Galatians 3, had talked about their personal experience of Jesus. How did you experience the Spirit Was it through belief or was it through the law? And today in our passage, she's going to turn to uh, the scriptural support for this idea of grace alone, faith alone, and not the law. And I want to invite us today um, as a posture, I do this with the kids and Lindsay just did it too, of just opening your hands. I know a lot of us are carrying heavy burdens today as we come in. We're just tired from the summer. Um, But I want to invite you, if you're not holding a Bible or writing um, furious notes about everything I say, um, (laughs) that you would just simply open your hands up. And we'll do a couple hand checks during the sermon, but just as a posture of openness um, to who God is and what he's doing, that if you have an open space to do that, just open up your hands. We're going to start by reading this passage, and we're going to go from Galatians 3, 6 through 25. Here we go. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, curse is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 
Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed who was promised the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of the Lord. Did you catch all that? Mm, Okay. As I was beginning my study a couple weeks ago on this passage, I came across this quote. It says, Galatians 3, 6 through 14 has often been seen as a maze of labored exegesis, puzzling illustration, and cryptic theological shorthand. I told you you wanted to bring this to the beach and read it. Um, it deals with themes, also says it deals with themes that are at the very heart of the Christian gospel. So we've got here core ideas of who we are in Christ and what our faith means, wrapped up in puzzling, enigmatic language. It's the kind of stuff you want on a long Sunday morning when it's hot in here. But my hope is, because as I first read this passage and read it over a couple times, I stumbled over some of these verses, and my hope for us is that we would um, not stumble over Paul's words and miss out on the wonder of the mystery of God's grace. So I don't want you reading through Galatians and going, uh, it's not for me. I don't get what he's saying. What is this stuff about a mediator and a guardian and so much scripture being quoted and bypass Galatians 3? Instead, I want to get us to the point, my hope is we can get to the point where we can get through some of these strange wordings and phrases to sit in the mystery of what Paul is saying, that faith alone brings us to Christ, and it is Christ's work and not the law's work that makes us righteous. So if we can get there and sit in a place and go, huh, I'd rather have you there than have read over this mediator, guardian stuff and go, what? Okay? So that's my hope, and we'll see what we can accomplish. Let's go to that first passage. We're going to take it chunk by chunk. So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, like I said before, Paul had just moved from a personal argument. Galatians, what did you experience in your life? And now he's looking to Scripture. Now, what does Scripture tell us about this faith? And the first person he turns to is Abraham. Abraham is a quintessential Sunday morning, Sunday school lesson for our kids. And what's really interesting is the last time I preached was Pentecost Sunday, and I did a comparison between the Tower of Babel and Pentecost when the Spirit came. And in Genesis, Tower of Babel comes where the people of the earth have come together to make a name for themselves They're trying to get security and a way back to God, and they start building this tower to prove their strength. And then they're dispersed by God and scattered, and their language is confused. And then the very next chapter, God calls Abram. He calls this man out of obscurity, and he tells them to leave his home. And it says in um, Genesis 12, it says, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So what the writer of Genesis is doing is saying, the people of earth try to make a name for themselves. It did not work. God dispersed them, and instead God called this man Abram, and he said, I will make your name great. And what's interesting about when God calls Abram and tells him this, he is 75 years old, He has no children, and his wife is barren. And God gives him this great promise. A little bit later in Genesis 15, this is God meets him again and says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, This is your Sunday school lesson, Look up into the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is the verse, the next one, chapter, verse 6. This is what Paul is quoting. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So God puts Abram in this impossible situation where he has nothing to offer, He's close to 90 years old, and God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You will have a son. You will have offspring. And Abram has no choice but to walk away or to do a little something like this. God. And he believes God with nothing to bring to the table. Galatians 3 is mirrored in uh, Paul's writing to the Romans, the letter of Romans, and Romans 4 is worth reading to kind of parallel these two passages. But in Romans 4.17, this is what Paul says about Abraham. He is our father in the sight of God, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. I want to read that again. 
Abraham is our father in the sight of God, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. We are invited to be children of Abraham in this sense, not because we follow a law, but because we open ourselves up to trust what God is saying with nothing to bring to the table, nothing to offer, but to trust instead in the character of God, the God who brings the dead to life and calls into being that which is not. So I invite you just to check where your hand's at. Are they open? Are you surrendered? Even if you're not there yet, personally, mentally, emotionally, you can put your hands out a little bit to say, God, I want to be there. We're going to keep reading. So in this next section, it says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So in this first section, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 26, and that cursed is everyone. Then he quotes um, Habakkuk. We'll get to that in a minute. Then he quotes Leviticus 18. And that Deuteronomy 27, 28 passage, I know you know it well, but it's this amazing story um, God has brought the Israelites, they've been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. By great wonders and miraculous signs, he's brought them out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. The first generation has died. Their second younger generation is ready to come finally inherit this promised land. And God gives them this covenant of the law. And he splits up the 12 tribes of Israel and he has six over here on this mountain and six over here on that mountain. And this side is going to um, say, share all these curses that will come on the people if they do not obey everything in the law. So they're shouting that from one mountain. And this side is going to shout out all the blessings that God will bring on the people if they follow all the things in the law. And it's a really amazing picture and story. And at the end, God says to them, or I think Moses says, choose life. I have laid before you today blessings and curses. Choose life. Moses is not going with them to the promised land. And he's giving them instead this covenant of the law and telling them, choose the blessings, please. But from what Paul is showing us here, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. As I was thinking about this, I remembered that one of the Hebrew understandings of sin is to miss the mark. And the Israelites were given the task to never miss the mark, okay? It would look a little bit like uh, a YouTube sensation called Dude Perfect, if you've heard of this. I want to show a clip, if we can, of what it could mean to never miss the mark. Uh, you got a package. Well, I ain't got no 
Gotcha. if you've seen Dude Perfect before, you're familiar with their work, yeah. That was a generational test. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, I try to explain to my kids when they watch these trick shot videos that that was not the first time he ever tried to cut a tomato by throwing it at the knife. And do not do that at home. But behind these videos, I imagine are hours and hours of outtakes and practice and a lot of mess ups but in our house when we do something on the first try we follow in their footsteps and go come on and we like run around the house and celebrate which is kind of a trademark thing that they do um, but the law was calling the people to be dude perfect okay to be youtube edited perfect and they could not do it and they would not be able to do it and it's interesting Go back to that Galatia. Oh, not back to the video. We're good on that. Um, in the middle there is this idea from Habakkuk 2.4, and I know you guys know your Habakkuk really well, but this verse, that the righteous will live by faith, had become a foundational verse for the Jews and the Christians, that righteousness comes through faith. But the Jewish concept of faith and the Christian concept of faith were very different because even the Jews believed that what Abraham did when it was credited to him as righteousness, that he was tested by God and proved himself and there was something to show in his faith. So there's something to show for his righteousness. He sort of did earn it. And what Paul is trying to say is it could not happen, that the righteous will live by faith. Okay? And what's important to note here is that the curse of the law had to be dealt with, okay? The curses that were announced on the mountain there, that curse is a sign of the sin that is in our world, something when we look back this week on the brokenness and the sin in our world is so undoubtable. But that curse had to be dealt with, and Christ is the one who took it on. 
The Israelites did suffer when they went astray from God's law. The curses that were pronounced to them did happen. As you read in scripture, you see kind of what happens as they began to disobey. But ultimately, Jesus is the one who bore the curse, who took it on himself and um, allowed us then to be redeemed. And when you see that word in Galatians that says Gentiles, for the majority of us, that's us. You can just say us. Okay? So that curse was serious, and there needed to be dealt with, and Christ was the one who came in to deal with it and to shape um, what our faith would look like. And this idea of righteousness, I wanted to go through it because it's kind of like, what wording are we using and what does that mean? There's two senses of it. There's like a forensic sense, like you've done nothing wrong. And there's also a relational sense, like you are in right relationship with someone, and namely God. And so when Abraham is credited this righteousness, is it's kind of both being played out. But it's not his own righteousness. It's God giving his righteousness, God's righteousness to Abraham. And it is God bringing Abraham into right relationship with God. I'm not saying that Abraham is without sin. If you read his whole story in Genesis, you'll quickly see that that's not true. That's true, that he's not without sin. But what's happening here is that God is taking the faith of Abraham and giving him God's righteousness and bringing Abraham into right relationship with God. I hope you're with me. We're not going to watch the video. So let's keep moving. So Paul says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say, and two seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So Paul is trying to use this example from everyday life, and he's talking about a will or a covenant made by humans that cannot be changed. And there are some covenants that can be Attended to and changed. and um, But what he's talking about, and scholars debate about this, I don't think it's that important. He's just trying to say there are things in life that are true and true and true and permanent, and they do not change. And if we make those contracts, then it's true that God can make them as well. And the promise that came to Abraham was unilateral, which means it came from God to Abraham. It wasn't a back-and-forth kind of promise, and it wasn't. it was unconditional, which means... Abraham did nothing to earn this promise. It was all God saying, I will do this. And it was coming from God and there was no conditions to it. So Abraham couldn't mess it up. And so Paul begins to talk about seeds. And it gets a little sketchy. What does he mean here? Seeds and no seeds and one seed but not many. And the Jews would see themselves as the seed of Abraham. So they weren't worried about singulars and plurals here. They were saying, we are the collective seed of Abraham. We are the offspring that he was promised. We are the ones that are going to number the stars and the grains of sand on the shore. We're the ones who do it. And they saw Isaac, Abraham's true son, as the seed of Abraham. 
So what Paul is doing here, Paul is saying, yes, if you walk linearly through Scripture, you're going to find these seeds, the Jewish people and Isaac. But what Paul is trying to do is elevate, take our view up 30,000 feet, and say this is really what's happening in the arc of Scripture. You have a promise given to this man, Abraham. And what God's saying is, what it's really pointing to this promise is all the way over. The arc of the story is going all the way over to Christ. And it's landing on Christ. So what he has pictured over here is Jesus coming thousands of years later. And so we go through all these things with the law and the people of Israel, and you could read through scripture in that way, but what Paul is trying to show the Galatian church and what he's trying to show us here today is the story of God is this, there is this narrative arc that's going up from Abraham to Christ, that he would be the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. And part of that is because Jesus represents and is true humanity come to earth, okay? Adam and Eve were at the beginning. They disobeyed God. Sin and brokenness came in. A promise is given to Abram. He has no way to fulfill what God is telling him is going to happen. And that promise for a nation and a blessing is actually meant for Christ who will come and who is at the center of all things. It was hard for the, the Jewish people to see this. It was hard for the Galatians to see this. But I hope is that we would see that bigger story coming out here that Paul is trying to paint a picture of. That when God spoke to Abraham, he had in view Christ's coming way before he was to come. And that Christ would be the ultimate seed. Israel was the people chosen by God. But Jesus is the one who is able to release us all from the curse of the law and of sin. And to bring all people into the blessing of the promise and the communion of the Spirit. So God's vision in all these things is to bring all people. And it, I've heard before, like, the Jews messed up. They could have been a light to the Gentiles, and they just didn't get it. I don't know if you've heard that before. If they would have just followed the law and done what God told them, they would have been a light to the Gentiles and a blessing to the Gentiles. But I think what Paul is saying here, the vision was much grander than just one people. It was to reach all people through the true human that is Jesus Christ. So then Paul goes on to say, Why then was the law given at all? Maybe you're asking yourself that same question right now. It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian.
This is a lot. I want to go back to this first section. So what Paul's task is, because what's happened in the Galatian churches is they've kind of put the law in equal footing as Christ. Okay, so yes, you followed Christ, you received the Spirit, but you've also got this law. You've got to do both things before you can be right with God. So what Paul's task to do is, is elevate Christ and put the law in its proper place. And that's what he's doing in this section here. So the Galatians might be wondering, then, why do we even have this law to mess with? What's the deal with this law? And he's trying to put it in its proper place, not completely disregard it, but to make sure that we understand it better. So when he's talking about a mediator, it says, a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. And this is a verse I read over and was like, I'm sorry, what? What does that mean? And I'm, this is where I've landed so far on this. He's comparing the two covenants. What was given to Abraham and what was given through Moses. And when Moses receives the law... There's a mountain, Mount, the Mount Sinai, and God is going to come down and speak to the people. And he begins to speak to the people, and there's like fire on the mountain, and he's telling like, no one come near the mountain, don't let your animals touch it. And God begins to speak, and the people are like, we cannot take it anymore. It's too much for us to hear the voice of God. Moses, you go up to the mountain and talk to God, and we'll stay down here, and you can just tell us what he said. So they set up a mediator between God and the Israelites. And so Moses goes up and acts as a mediator. And so what Paul is pointing out here is that promise, the covenant given to them, they couldn't even receive it on their own. They had to have a mediator go up and hear from God and then write it down for them. Okay, so he's showing the indirectness, the separation there between the Mosaic law and the people. And then he's also showing when he says, but God is one. So when Abraham, when he receives the promise, God is the one giving the promise. Abraham's actually asleep when the covenant is confirmed. If you go back and read in Genesis, he falls asleep, or he's caused to fall asleep more so. But it shows that God is the one enacting this covenant. And in Moses' story, there's this mediator between them, and there's angels between them. And So Paul is trying to show the layers of separation between a direct promise from God to the people. Does that make sense? So when we get tripped over this, when he's talking about a mediator, he's talking about Moses. And he's saying instead, when we see with the promise to Abraham, it was from God directly. And then he says, so is the law opposed to the promises of God? He says, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come from the law. I often wonder about the patience of God and telling his story and working out his narrative here on earth. I think I've said this before, why couldn't it be Adam and Eve and their first son, ready for it, Jesus. Yay, we solved it. And I was with some fourth and fifth graders at VBS in a small group setting, and we were talking about all things theological. And one of them asked like that question, why didn't God just fix this already? I don't think they're that snipey about it. That's just me. Um, but if the law would have solved the problem of sin, 
we would not be here this morning trying to figure all this out. If the law could have solved the problem of sin, this week of events that have happened would not have happened. We would have figured it out by now. But we're stuck because the curse of the law, the curse of sin, is embedded in who we are in our experience as humans, and it is only through Christ that that curse is broken. And so the law comes to show the transgressions until Jesus came. And God was patient enough to let that story unfold in its mystery and its sort of wonder. God, what are you doing? You call this people, you give them this law, and they have to be under this law, but then ultimately that law will be put away because of what Christ has done. But God is patient to tell this whole story, and we need to be patient as we listen to it and maybe not look after it for quick fixes to the problem of sin. I was thinking how I am kind of the law in my household <laughs> in not the redemptive sense. I'm like the one who's like, you left the drawer open. Cabinet doors open. Lights on upstairs. Who left this on the floor? I am the law in our house. And actually, when I realized that, I was like, oh, bummer. I don't know that I want to be the law. And then there's this curious part about Scripture locking us up. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of end here. We're almost at the end of this passage. The law formed the people of Israel, and it set them apart from the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the land they were about to inhabit. So it set them apart from where they came and the neighbors that would be around them. God gave them an identity and a culture through this law. And this is what Paul says at the end of this passage. It says, But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Okay. Um, I don't know, we just started swim lessons this month, and I was watching the lifeguards that are on the deck, okay? So if you think about going to a pool and you see the lifeguard or the beach too, um, does the lifeguard, when does the lifeguard blow her whistle? You, you can shout them out. During adult swim. <laughs> Get out of the pool. Does the lifeguard blow the whistle when they see good things happening in the water? <laughs> or does the lifeguard, does she blow her whistle when she sees something dangerous happening in the water that's going to either hurt someone or hurt someone else? Yes, the second, right? We would be very confusing if you were swimming and you're getting the whistle blown at you and you're like, oh, what did it do? And they're like, good stroke. That was nice. <laughs> good form on that one. That was really good. But the role of the lifeguard is to point out when something dangerous, activity in the water is happening, that's dangerous. Okay? They also have the position of rescuing the people in the water, and we're grateful for that. But when they're up on the pool deck, they're blowing their whistle because something dangerous in the water is happening. And the law is similar to that. It's point out, pointing out the transgressions that are happening among the people for their safety. This idea of guardian is, um, actually comes from a Greek word that's like pedagogue, 
would be like our English word for it. Um, and it's not in the sense that we have now of like a teacher pedagogy, pedagogy, pedagogy. Um, it's instead the pedagogue was, again, in a role I often find myself. It's the handholder in the Greek household. So it takes the child from the household and leads them to the teacher. And it takes them from the teacher and leads them to the household. So this week when I was doing skateboarding lessons and swim lessons with my kids, I was Ava, who is two, her pedagogue, because I was keeping her from going into the basketball court with 15 new skateboarders, okay? And I was the one leading her up the stairs and down the elevator and up the stairs and down the elevator while she waited for her brother to be done with his class, okay? And I was the one feeding snacks to the two-year-old to keep her occupied while brother and sister were swimming. I was the pedagogue. I was the guardian. I wasn't really teaching her anything, except indirectly maybe, and I wasn't really helping her to become a more fully formed person. I was just leading her from one activity to another. I was driving her around. I was the pedagogue. And the, the word that Paul uses here for the law, he describes the same sense of a pedagogue that just brings them from one point to another. Okay? So what he's doing is really, in a sense, degrading the law so that the Galatians could see the elevated sense of who Christ is and what Christ has done. For us, I don't know that we need to make the law a pedagogue or a lifeguard. I feel like in American evangelical Christianity, we look at the law and either completely skip over it, or we think that was for then and not for now, and it's really, it has no purpose for us. But you have to understand that the law and God's story is beautiful. And it is infused with the character of God. It identified and set apart the Jews. And it also identifies sin in all people. So there is a purpose in the law. And I don't want us to become a community after we've read Galatians to go, I have freedom in Christ. I don't need that. Like, there is a purpose in the law. It's not going to bring us to Christ. And it doesn't declare us righteous. But it was an important piece of God's work in this world and in his patience of forming a people who would echo his character. So where does that bring us today? I hope not more confused. And if there are parts that you go, but what about, come talk to me, because I read a bunch, and I would love to talk more about the ins and outs of the different parts of this passage, maybe in an air-conditioned place with coffee. But I'm, I'm very open to talking more about this. But where I want us to land today is not on these little phrases that may throw us off, but instead on this wonder of who God is. That he is the God... I'm going to find it. Who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. That through this whole story, God called a man when he was 75 and promised him he would be the father of many nations. And that man, not relying any way on this, his own story and experience, said, yes, God. And he opened up his hands in faith. 
and he trusted God. And Abraham, father of many, became foundational to who we understand ourselves to be in Christ. And that blessing and promise given to Abraham was brought to Christ because through Christ, all people can receive that blessing and find hope apart from anything they would ever do to earn it. When we come to this table today, we have nothing to offer. And if we think we've got something in our hands to offer God, a spiritual discipline we did or a good deed, you got to let it go. Because those things do not bring us close to Christ. But what brings us close to Christ is a surrendered belief in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that are not. And I invite you to put your hands out as we pray. God, would you remind us of the work of your spirit in our own lives? Would you remind us of the greater story of scripture and how you are at work in wondrous and mysterious ways? God, would you open our hands up to the wonder of who you are and allow us to surrender all those things that would build us up in our own minds and instead believe in you because you are the God who brings life to the dead. And God, you are the one who calls into being things that are not in impossible situations. And we thank you that you are patiently walking through with us. And God, you have promised the renewal of all things through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.